0: Welcome to the Wealthy After Divorce podcast, Jackie Ressler, a divorce financial planner with almost 25 years experience, and myself, Melissa Fradenberg, financial advisor with Pearl Planning. We are both
1: certified divorce financial analysts and your co-hosts. If you're thinking about divorce or in the process of divorce, this is a time for you to take a deep breath and give yourself permission to gain clarity on the financial decision they're
0: facing. While the term wealth typically refers to money and possessions, we know that truly being wealthy means a whole lot more. Together with our guests on this podcast, we will help you live wealthy after divorce.
1: I want to welcome Max Emmer, family law attorney in Michigan to our show, Wealthy After Divorce. And I'm very excited to have Max here. I have had the pleasure of working on a case with Max. And I think that you bring competence, compassion, and, um, and humor to cases, which is
2: I really,
1: greatly needed. And, um, and so we keep getting the same question again and again in the office. And I thought you'd be a great person to answer some of our, our questions. We focus on this podcast at how to be wealthy after your divorce is done. But part of that is making sure that you're handling your finances during a divorce and sometimes even before the last several people who've reached out to me have all had the same kind of paralyzing fear. They know that they want to get a divorce. They're ready to move forward, but they are not the bill payer and they don't have access to money and they don't know what's gonna happen. So I keep getting this same question. You know I want to file for divorce. How do I hire an attorney without it? Am I still going to get my my hair dyed and, and buy groceries and things like that while well, it's pending. So uh, Max, what is the first step for somebody who doesn't have access to the marital funds?
2: Sure. Thanks, Jackie, and I'm happy to be here. Uh you you asked a lot of really good questions and I'll I'll do my best to kind of tick an answer off for each. What I would say is no one should ever be penalized for or prevented from pursuing a divorce merely because of their financial status or access to. Um, The law does not give powers, even though it might seem like there is, to the breadwinner that they can only control the finances. If you're unhappy in a marriage, you have an absolute right to get a divorce. There's a judge in Wayne County who says, You need two signatures and a kiss to get married. You only need one to get divorced. So (laughs) money might make things more difficult, but it will not prevent you. So my advice would be um, the first step is talking with a family lawyer who you know or are recommended or referred. Unfortunately, no lawyers, and I speak from experience, we're not going to start a case for free. Usually we start with what's called a retainer, but you don't necessarily need check or cash to start a case nowadays, people are really relying on credit cards, one, because they're fast and easy, two, because they don't have the cash in hand. If for some reason that is difficult, people tend to go to friends or families for a loan or a credit card if they don't want it to appear on their statement right. until they file. So there are you know ways to do it, but your spouse is eventually going to find out whether they see a statement or you filed or served. And I can tell you, there are procedural safeguards we can put in place to one, protect you from financial punishment in the event your spouse is unhappy, and two, to ensure the financial status quo, AKA the way you've lived prior to divorce, is at least maintained during the pendency of your divorce, unless both parties agree. And I'm happy to expand on those legal and procedural safeguards if that would be helpful.
1: So, oh yeah, definitely. So the bottom line is, if, if somebody wants to get a divorce and they don't have access to the money, they're probably not going to get in trouble if they charge it
2: on a credit card.
1: Um, definitely be... not. They have
2: a right to absolutely. Um, first of all, a you know, hiring a lawyer to get a divorce and a retainer for that is not a um, nefarious expense. You know, I always you know, when people talk about expenses, you know, contemplating divorce. If you go spend thirty grand at a casino or twenty grand shopping, that's different. But to go spend a couple thousand dollars in getting a lawyer um, is, I would say, beyond reproach. Yes.
1: Okay. All right. Well, that's 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 good for a first. And then, I think you touched a little bit on the second part. The the second piece of that question that I usually get is okay. And, and again, I'm never thinking in these terms. I'm thinking about the big picture for my clients long term financially. Are they going to be able to retire on time? Are they going to uh, be able to afford the house they want to keep in for some people their mind is stuck in how does the electric bill get paid? How do all these things get paid? If my spouse doesn't want the divorce and I file, great, I've got an attorney, but now what? Am I is my credit going to go down if you know minimum payments aren't made on things?
2: Right. That's a great question. And I I'm gonna address it both in traditional litigation as well as kind of in the collaborative world that you and I both operate in, because it is a little different. If I am filing a traditional divorce litigation case with my complaint, I most often am also filing with two, what we call ex parte orders. And ex parte means those are filed and entered by the court before your spouse even gets to see them. And we file two orders. One is called the maintenance of the financial status quo. And the other is for the preservation of the marital estate and a prohibition against transferring assets out of the estate. And what those two orders do, if if we file on Monday, your complaint for divorce, those two orders, the second those are entered, those are now enforceable and legally binding court orders. So what happens is we serve those on your husband or your wife. And from that moment on, there are court legal protections that one, makes sure that the married, married couple maintains the financial status quo, and two, prohibits them from making any major financial decisions or moves that were not contemplated for before the marriage or are not mutually agreed upon between the parties. So to answer your question, let's say Susie spent $100 a month getting hair color. That's status quo, she gets to keep doing that. Could the husband argue with her and maybe go to court? Sure, I think he would look like an idiot, but he could do that. Um, at the same time, um, you know, whoever was paying for the health insurance has to continue to do so as long as those court orders are made. Now in collaborative, we don't have court orders because we're not in court, but our participation agreement has similar language about maintaining the status quo. So what I would say is if you're at the point where you want to initiate a divorce and you have these worries, please ensure and talk to your lawyer about drafting and entering ex parte orders. That way, a party cannot just willy-nilly or out of spite or anger or hatred, shut off the electric, stop paying the insurance, what have you. And if they do, they will be sanctioned and penalized by the court. So there are tools in our our legal divorce toolbox that can protect you from an angry or spiteful spouse.
1: So, and I'm glad you brought up The difference between a traditional litigated case and a collaborative case. Um, I think that's something that um, is a fun topic, even for another session to talk about. Absolutely. Um, From a financial perspective, when I'm in a collaborative case, I'm a financial neutral. So I'm working with both parties, not just one. Um, And also, we are staying outside of the court system, like you said. and, And I think that that's also been a sticking point for clients that are debating whether or not they want to go the traditional litigated route or collaborative, they're worried about the status quo. You know, is it better for me to go collaborative because then we are all talking about a status quo or is it better for me to file, ensure that there is, that payments are going to be made from a legal perspective?
2: So that's a really good question. And I think you have to find a lawyer you trust to help give you the best advice. you know, I always say as a family lawyer, I don't encourage or discourage divorce. I don't sell or not sell a process. I provide the information and resources to the client to make the best decision for themselves. Typically, I love collaborative. I love the creativity and the flexibility and being outside the court system. That said, collaborative is not for everyone. And and my general rule would be, if a client comes to me or comes to you, Jackie, and has legitimate or serious concerns about the transparency of their spouse, of the you know, financial capabilities of their spouse, or the general trustworthiness of their spouse, I'm probably going to defer to court because then I get those ironclad ex parte orders. And the other thing I get effective 2000, you know, 2020, there are now court mandated financial disclosures that require a signature and a notary. And so there's built in in several ways within the first 60 to 90 days of your case to really put in those financial protections. Now, are they in, in theory, in a collaborative case? Yes. Are you hiring a financial neutral and it requires transparency? Yes. But the participation agreement is not court. And if someone doesn't follow it, then you have to basically scrap it and go to court. So my general advice would be if I have a client or you have a client, who is at a tremendous financial disadvantage, whether it's amount or power or information and probably lean towards court just to get them the assurances of one, those orders and to the mandated disclosures.
1: That's great. Okay. Thank you. I love that answer. And I think, you know, for me too, it always comes back to, I really encourage people to talk to their attorney. So, When they go and interview an attorney, really bring up these questions. Um, A lot of times, people are intimidated and they think that, well, that's kind of that's a stupid question. Um, I think that that's such an important issue in people's minds, and from a as a professional, it's hard to get into that person's mind. I think and, and really relate to like that they're worrying about like the everyday maintenance of their life while the case is pending. And, um, when you're able to answer those kinds of questions for people, they're trusting you obviously goes way up too, because you can hear, you know, what their concerns. And I think you do a great job of that with clients. Um, as far as, so another question that comes up at times is let's say that I had a, um, a big, so you, you, you mentioned that when a case is filed, in the court system, that there would be a status quo order generally filed. I, I didn't know that. That's great to know um, that that's filed really in every case or have the ability to file it in every case. Yeah, you
2: have the ability to file in every case. I mean, it's it's really just depending. I mean, you know, I always say, look, to prepare the pleadings is pretty quick and to do a status quo order is probably 20 minutes. So unless someone's super opposed to it, I would say most lawyers do. Interestingly enough, in Oakland County, A few judges have been getting a bit pickier on when they'll enter them because they don't want blanket orders. But yeah, the routine has been in traditional litigation to file those two ex parte orders.
1: Okay. And I think you bring up another excellent point. We're in Michigan. But it really matters that you, when you're looking for an attorney, that you hire someone that knows the county that you live in. Absolutely. So you know, because things not only vary by from state to state, but they vary by jurisdiction. And so we have a lot of. Um, I mean, I have clients sometimes that will call up, and they're in Grand Rapids or they're in Charlevoix. They need to have an attorney that's familiar with their particular court system to really be effective.
2: Absolutely. I, I get. I'm fortunate. I recently got a call from a. a, a uh, woman in Kent County and she said she was really comfortable with me and I said that comfort is only leave cuz I'm going to always do its best and I'm not a Kent County lawyer and even in our area um even though the law is the same Wayne County and the judges of the system is completely different than Oakland and same with Macomb and i
1: right. think
2: you hopefully want to get a lawyer who will be honest with you and not just take every case but will be straight up and say hey This area might not be my area of expertise, but I'll help find the person who is. You know, I I very much in my practice, I know my little sliver of the universe and I think I'm quite good at it, but I'm very quick to acknowledge what is outside my my purview. And I think, you know, clients are weary of lawyers. And I think the way I try to get good faith from them and trust them is, is to be upfront because I think someone would rather me be straight with them and say, hey, I'm not the best fit, but I'm going to help you find that best fit. People, when you're going to take such a major life step and decision, meet with more than one lawyer, see who you're comfortable with, see who you gel with. And I think um, in addition to the law and all that, um, it, it might sound like an odd word, but you doing this work, there is an intimacy, you know, you are going to have some of the hardest conversations of your life with this person. This person is going to be privy to arguably more information about you than anyone in your life. And aside from just confidence, you should feel a certain level of comfort, trust, and respect. And I tell people, hey. it's, you know, like any like any other interview, it's it's a two-way street. There has to be that comfort level and buy-in or it's not gonna be a successful professional relationship.
1: I agree 100%. I mean, I always tell clients the most important decision that they can make on, a, on their case is to hire the right attorney for them. You know, you never get a second shot at this settlement. You're, you're right. I don't think about that from that perspective that they are privy to really private information about your life. You email. Yes. I mean, it is. Yeah.
2: And I think it's, it's, it's just about, um, you know, I, I use the line all the time that family lawyers were unlicensed therapists. And I mean, really, I say over half my day is being that. Um,
1: And, and, you know, it's
2: really about just, it's really about compassion and being, you know, empathic. And, you know, I always say, I try to be thoughtful and reasonable, which is not the two words that most people think of when describing family lawyer, but I think it's needed in this day and age. And, you know, hopefully with the work we do together, there is, um, you know, kind of a trend towards more thoughtfulness and reasonable, and not just Scorched earth, nuclear warfare, right. oh, absolutely. really no one wins except the lawyers.
1: Right. Um, and, you know, again, going going back to that idea of the status quo. So you brought up that in Michigan, we now require a financial disclosure. And whenever I told right. other professionals in other states, they couldn't believe it when I said that we don't have one required. But what ours is lacking, actually, is it doesn't request a list of living expenses. And so no,
2: you're right. it doesn't. Other All states it is, do. Is yeah. Liability. No, that's so, important. And I, yeah, that's absolutely so important.
1: So when it comes to the status quo, and you talk about, you know, that the an ex parte order might say that the status quo is going to be continued. Isn't that up for interpretation as far as what the status quo is? And do you recommend to clients that they maybe put together a list of expenses that can you attach something like that to an ex parte order? Or
2: So I think that's a great, that's a great question and topic. You know, I think I've never had someone attach an exhibit or a list. I always try to come at it from the reasonable person point of view, and so I think there's certain things that are reasonable and certain things that aren't. I think getting your hair done, getting a manicure and a pedicure, that's fine. Is you know your monthly trip to Vegas, gambling ten grand, probably not the status quo. <laughs> you know, I tend to say when we're talking about status quo, we're talking about doing things for the marital state. Um, you know, people have asked me to put a number on it where. I think under that number you don't need to get the other person's permission. The problem is a $1000 to couple A might be everything and the couple B might be their dinner. Right. So if I if if I'm demanded to put a number, I usually say things that are done routinely that are say under $500 or $1000. I think those can continue, you know, I think a good example of something that, you know, would be not in the status quo or not in the direct preservation, would be a contemplated construction project, buying a new car, things like that. Because really what we're trying to do with these orders is twofold. One, to maintain the marital estate so that neither party nor the estate is subject to major losses or substantial changes during dependency of the action. And two, we're trying to make sure no one's trying to benefit or advantage or disadvantage someone by getting a divorce or getting divorced. And so the court's point of view is on the long end, a divorce takes what a year, maybe some take longer. But really, the court's view is hey, we're going to basically lock this thing up and we're going to keep it pretty much intact for the next three, six, nine, 12 months. And whatever you two want to do with your property thereafter, fine, but no one's making major decisions during, you know, no one gets to go say, i am going to invest 200 grand in a new business, or I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go buy that Harley or that Corvette. Now, if both parties agree, you can absolutely make agreements during. If John and Susie say, hey, um, we're going to sell the house. And we think, you know, we were talking about redoing the master bathroom, and that's going to help the value. They can absolutely agree to that. All I say as a lawyer is let's memorialize that, at least with an email, if not maybe a stipulated order saying the couple's going to do this. Because what you don't want to happen is you don't want them to agree, you don't memorialize it, and then someone goes back on their word and then someone technically violated court Right, so I didn't so agree I to would, that,
1: right? <laughs> I don't, right. don't remember so agreeing I to
2: that. Little things honestly can be memorialized with an email. If we're talking a major expenditure or change I would have that in writing and maybe even a stipulated order. That way it's on the record with the court and it's um, you know there's no ambiguity or room for misinterpretation. So I guess the upshot is those orders are there for protection. They're not there to make your life miserable. And you absolutely do have the right to live your life and maneuver your life during it. It's just certain things could be unilateral, whereas certain things need to be agreed upon. Or you'd go before the court and say, hey, I need this money for this. They disagree and the court may make a judgment or the court might say, hey, that can be part of your property settlement or that needs to wait till your divorce is finalized.
1: Got it. Are there ways to protect one party? Let's say that it's been part of the status quo, that one party has been dissipating assets or one person, one one of the clients feels like they... Um, that money, the other side is dissipating money, whether it's on things like gambling, shopping, it could be a variety of things that they think there's, it could be even that one person thinks that there's overspending on the children. Are those the kinds of things that can be handled upfront when you're filed? Or is that the kind of topic that you deal with within the course of the case?
2: So I would, I would, that's a really good question. So I would say within the course of the case, because I guess you're right. If you have a clever lawyer and your client spends five grand a month at the casino. Could he argue that that is the status quo? Uh, yes, and that's where it gets tricky. You know, I would say anytime you're having expenses that are related to illicit activities, and and when I say maybe that's infidelity or strip clubs, or and not that gambling is illicit, but I guess expenses that are not benefiting the marriage, the marital estate, and the family those would typically be dealt with during negotiations and mediation. You know, For instance, if one party's gambled $30,000 of marital funds over the other's objection, obviously, it's difficult to prove. But in my eyes, if I'm the lawyer for the non-gambler, I'm saying, hey, look, I want a $15,000 sweetener from somewhere else because I didn't agree to this, nor did I benefit right. from this. Um, You know, a lot of times if there's infidelity and it's been proven, say there's hotel rooms or shopping or things like that, um, we might, when we have a financial, if we're lucky enough to have someone like you, we might get a dollar figure and say, hey, look, spouse A spent $13,000 on his paramour and we have to credit for that. And we have to allocate an account for that. So what I would say is you know, unless the expenses are to the point where they're maybe going to threaten the financial livelihood and survival of everyone. I mean, if you have a net worth of a million dollars and your spouse is spending 150 grand a month gambling, I would probably act sooner than waiting to mediation because you could lose everything. But if we're talking about a couple thousand here, a couple thousand there, that absolutely needs to be accounted for, But that's probably more so something we're going to do during the course of the case. And really, we're going to say, hey, that wasn't right. That wasn't fair. That's not equitable. Where is my client going to get a credit for that? And and that's pretty common because in most every case, there's arguments about people spending things that they shouldn't or that people disagree with. Now, is that a dollar for dollar credit? That's up for negotiation, but right. typically that would be meted out in in negotiation.
1: I have had several cases recently where there's been egregious spending that has dissipated the marital estate, and what I find though is that there's a time frame that we're going to go that we're really able to realistically go back and credit back for someone if it is part of the status quo that five six thousand a month is being spent on gambling. It's a good reason for somebody who's concerned about that too. I mean, not that I, I'm never encouraging someone to file for divorce before they're ready, but to actually get that place marker in there, that to stop the bleeding
2: in some ways. Oh, I say all the time too, like you and I both say, we don't encourage or discourage divorce, but I mean, a lot of times, you know, with respect to spousal support, it's not a huge factor, but the length of your marriage is a factor. So is someone who's married 15 years going to pay more than someone who's married 10 years in support? Yeah, they are. So, I mean, there are time factors. And a month might not matter or a day, but I think what you bring up is really important because if you're already kind of ready to take that jump and that leap, you want it to kind of be shown that you are not condoning, approving, nor benefiting from this behavior. And here is that kind of line of demarcation that shows that we have to address and remedy this. So I would absolutely agree there. Right. And that's probably something I would even put in the initial pleadings, even though who re, who knows if they're even read, but just put a note or a point that so-and-so, you know, has a, you know, avid gambling problem. And this is a, a major concern import that needs to be addressed. And you're really kind of nipping it in the bud from the start. I think that's really smart.
1: I think that it all goes back to having a good introductory conversation or two with your attorney to make sure that you really are on the same page and that your attorney is, you know, understands from the client's perspective what are their main concerns and how can you address them. Is there anything else that you would that you'd want to add that we haven't talked about about going ahead and, and pulling the trigger and filing if you don't have access to to money?
2: I think, you know, obviously it's it's so much easier to be where we are than the people who are listening or concerned about this. You know, obviously, it's easy for me to tell someone, oh, just go put a couple grand in your credit card or go get a couple grand from friends and family. But I do think, you know, as lawyers and professionals, I think what we have to do is we really have to differentiate the person with dangerous and exigent circumstances versus the person who just says they can't access. Because I get calls from, you know, particularly women who might say, hey, look, I literally don't have a dollar to my name, I can't access anything. And I'm like, you need to get free legal aid here and you're entitled to it. Whereas I've had clients who are like, oh, he runs the bills. I don't know where to get the money. While everyone deserves kind of the same attention and kind of concessions, I do think people are in different boats. And I I do think part of our job is, um, you know, I think people think about the divorce so emotionally and and they don't think about it clinically like we do. That Sometimes we do have to give them a little bit of a roadmap to say, oh, Step A is put it on your credit card. If you really don't have a credit card have your parents or your sibling, you know, I had a client recently who had plenty of money, but she was absolutely terrified of it being on a credit card statement. You know, so I said, okay, well, do you have a friend or, a you know, a family member? Oh, yeah. She goes, oh, my brother will do it. And And so, I mean, people have options. And I think, you know, unless you're hiring a tremendously expensive, sophisticated lawyer, Most retainers in Michigan, you know, we're talking a few thousand dollars. It is easier to come up with two or three or five than it is to say 10 or 20. And so, what I would say, um, when you know, when getting to this point, a talk to more than one lawyer, b ensure that you have a comfort and respect and kind of a uh, mutual understanding with that lawyer, and then. See, make sure that lawyer is checking in with you. I will always say, maybe I'm on the other end of the pendulum. I do not file or send anything without my client reviewing and approving it. And for me, one, it's their case in their life. Who am I to do that? But I know I sleep better at night, and I think they do too, because then they really are the true driver of the process. And they know and I know that no piece of writing, pleading, document information is leaving my email without them approving it. And especially when we talk about collaborative or certain cases, I write a very detailed kind of introductory letter. I know it sounds ridiculous, introductory letter to the divorce. My clients sometimes will add personal touches or tweaks or take something out that they know won't jive well with their spouse. So I do think having a lawyer who isn't going to make you micromanage them, but having a lawyer who cares about and values your input because. If they're not going to do that at the start of the case, when you've just paid them and they're ready to rock, they certainly are not going to get your buy-in and value and and insights later down the road.
1: And that's where all of the important T's need to be crossed and I's need to be dotted. And um, you're absolutely right. Buy-in from the client, getting client's approval before things go out.
2: We can only do so much as professionals. You know, we give our best advice and counsel and then the chips fall as they may.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, Max, thank you so much for being my guest today. I, I know that um I, this is gonna be valuable information for a lot of people that are worried about taking that that next step and jumping into the process of getting a divorce. So again, thank you for being here. And we are gonna have your contact information to be able to check out your website and email you directly posted in the notes below this, uh, this session.
2: Great, thanks so much, Jackie. Happy to be here. And if I can ever be helpful to you or any of your clients, Don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wealthy After Divorce podcast. You can find more information on Melissa Fradenberg and Jackie Ressler on our website, www.pearlplan.com, as well as on our podcast website, www.wealthyafterdivorce.com.